aspects of our own lives. But Father, would you um, capture our hearts, steal our hearts away from the things that our hearts gravitate towards. Remind us that there's only one uh, who's truly great. The mention of your name, uh, King of Majesty, the demons run and flee. There's no one like you on this earth or in the heavens above. And we pray that you would realign our hearts with yours and recapture our allegiance so that it would go to the one to whom it rightly belongs, to you and to you alone. We pray that as we uh, gather this Sunday to be with the people of God, to be, at, uh, to be the people of God in your presence, Lord, would you uh, yeah, fix our gaze upwards in order that we might live in light of what we do here today. We thank you for uh, the call that you've placed within our lives here at Harvest to glorify your, your name by equipping Christ-centered leaders to transform the world. Father, remind us that as we seek to be a bride ready for the coming of our bridegroom, Lord, this is what it means, that we would not be influenced by, but that we would be agents of change in the world in which you've called us to be. We thank you and we pray that for every life stage of our church, from children to youth, the college students to adults, Lord, that we would live out that call faithfully and boldly, joyfully and winsomely in order that a world would see the goodness of God. We thank you for our workers in the field, places that um, both here domestically as well as internationally, in, uh, in places like Korea, in North Korea, in China, in Japan, to the Uyghur peoples, in places like Jordan and Turkey, in Spain and Australasia, uh, in Cameroon where Todd and Esther and their family serve. We thank you that next week we'll be able to welcome them to share an update on their lives and how COVID uh, has opened up so many opportunities for them and how, God, you're using them in the midst of a pandemic in order to bring the gospel. Thank you for that. We pray that you would help us to welcome them in next week with open arms and to really encourage them so that when they go back into Africa and the continent there, that you would give them uh, just hearts so full and strengthened by their interaction with us. We thank you for workers serving you in Thailand and Taiwan and in places like Myanmar and uh, Kyrgyzstan, in places like uh, Vietnam, we pray that your gospel continue to go forth. Work through people like Gonzalo in Ecuador and others in uh, the mission field throughout the world. Father, would you strengthen us? Pray that as we begin this new sermon series, as we look at the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, Father, we pray that it would do for us what it did for your church then, that it would give us uh, new strength and new vision and new encouragement uh, to say, even so, come. Lord Jesus, pray that you would give us now ears to hear personally as well as as a corporate body, that you would be with me, my gracious master and my God, assist me to proclaim, to spread through all the earth abroad, the honors of your name. We thank you so much. We love you. We need you. We listen for your voice. Would you speak loud and clear in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, welcome in. Hey, can you do this? Can you, if you're worshiping online, can you do this? And if you are here, can you just look at someone and say the first thing that you think of when you hear the word or the three words, the book of Revelation? What do you think of when you think of Revelation? Can you chat that if you're a chatting type or just share that with somebody next to you? What do you think? Revelation. Revelation without an S at the end. It is Revelation, not Revelations. All right. 
We are going to spend about three weeks, I'm sorry, about nine weeks looking at the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. And we're not going to go through the entirety of it. And so we're probably not going to get into a lot of the, the, the nitty-gritty and the things like, what is the mark of the beast? Can I get vaccinated? What if I have to put a chip in my head? Am I allowed to do that? We're not going to get into things like that. We can talk about that later. You can ask uh, Josiah about it. He'll give you all of uh, his seminary education and unload that on you. But we're going to talk about mainly uh, the words of Jesus to the church and what it means, how we can be prepared for that which is to come. We're going to be looking at that. One of the um, things, uh, kind of the, the, the TV trends, TV show trends of the last few years, I would say, is TV shows that would, would used to air back when, like when I was growing up, when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, are coming back now 30 years later. And this is really exciting for all the nostalgic types. But it's not just a remaking of that, like, hey, let's take Superman and, and bring Superman up uh, and, and, and do it again. It's not a remaking of it. It's a continuation of those stories that are being told in real time. So if they were, like, 10 years old back then when we were watching the show, now they're, like, 40 years old if it's 30 years later. It's a continuation of it, kind of like, let's catch up with where they were. So if they were... If they were five then, they're now like parents now. If they were children back then, they probably got children now. It's happened with shows like uh, Beverly Hills 90210. Olivia and I were really excited about that. It was only like four episodes because it was pretty bad. But uh, we were excited to see, okay, this is like Brandon and uh, Dill. Well, no, no longer, but Brandon and his family. Uh, they were high school students then. Now they're like 45, 50 years old. And what, have, what has life done to them? What have they been doing with their lives? It happened with, um, recently with Saved by the Bell. Like, that's been really exciting, except I don't have peacocks. I can't watch it. But Saved by the Bell, it happened with that one. Um, there was another one, uh, Full House, Fuller House. Like, now the kids who are, like, so cute are all grown up now. And it's really exciting. Uh, obviously, Cobra Kai, which is the best of all of them. But it's these shows where you, you saw them when they were younger, and now you're fast-forwarding all these years to see what they've been up to and how life has progressed for them. As we've been looking, last week we looked at the, the true story of the resurrection, the first Easter Sunday, and I thought it would be really neat if we could just kind of catch up with them. Like, what's happened through the years? How has the passage of time and the passage of, of century, of decades shaped the way the world is as a result of the way that they used to live. And so what I want to do is I want to go back to about the year 90 A.D. If you've taken Harvest 101, you know that that's the year that the last book of the Bible, Revelation, around that time, the last book of the Bible was written. Now, kind of to get us up to speed, and what I want to do is for the next two weeks is, is to lay a foundation for us to get into the letters of the church that Jesus wrote, that he spoke and dictated to John as he was writing this revelation on the island of Patmos. So what I want to do today is kind of start this foray by getting us up to speed on what happened after that first resurrection Sunday. So Jesus rose from the dead on Easter Sunday, showed himself to all these people in the 40 days afterwards. All of his disciples who were remaining saw Jesus. Some of them doubted, they worshiped, but they ultimately came to place of faith. After that, what happens is that these group of people get together and they are mobilized through seeing the risen Lord. The Spirit of God comes on them and then the church is born out of that. The church, we're, we're a church here. All of this goes back to the events of what happened in the 40 days ensuing after the resurrection and beyond. So as the church begins in Jerusalem, Peter preaches, bam, and the Spirit of God comes, and this, this great wave of revival happens. And in one day, 3,000 people put their faith in Jesus, and from there, church just begins to spread. Now, there are people 
both during the time of Jesus and after Jesus had, had gone back to heaven that did not like the movement of Jesus to be spreading. It was the Jewish rulers, Jew, Jewish leadership, the religious leaders there. So they did everything they could to stamp out the movement of Jesus. And so they began to persecute the church. That means they began to put them in prison. They, they began to take their lives, began to take their children, take their freedoms away from them. And so persecution hits. And so the church begins to spread outside of Jerusalem to the surrounding region, which was called Judea. Persecution hits them there. They keep going to Samaria. And everywhere they go, like everywhere the believers go, they're like running for their lives, but they're dropping Jesus all over the people. And so as they're running, wherever they go, it's like a forced mission trip. Persecution is pushing them out. And so the gospel is spreading wherever the church of Jesus Christ was going. And so into all of these little uh, different places and different towns and villages and cities, the gospel is spreading and the church is growing. And that's what it was doing. In Acts 1.8, Jesus says, here's the way it's going to happen. It's going to start in Jerusalem. It's going to go to Judea and then the next town to Samaria and then the next uh, region. And then it's going to go to the ends of the earth. And so that's what's happening. The church is growing. The gospel is on the move. It's running with feet uh, empowered by the Spirit, and it's going forth, and the church is growing all over the Roman Empire. As this is happening, the disciples of Jesus, the ones who are at once so afraid of the religious leadership, of the leadership of the people there, they have become emboldened, and they are being persecuted for their faith. The ones who first said, I don't know Jesus, now are standing up saying, I'm willing to die for Jesus. So in the year 64 A.D., there's an emperor of Rome named Nero, and he begins a persecution because now this movement is starting to gain some traction. It's no longer the Jewish leadership who's threatened. They've been pretty much blown out the water. Now it's Rome, the city of Rome, that says, you know what, we need to, we need to come up with a scapegoat to blame for the problems of Rome, and they chose the Christians. And so in the year 64 A.D., Nero begins this Roman, in the city of Rome, persecution of the believers. And this is where Peter, the disciple of Jesus, who preached and 3,000 came to know Jesus soon after Pentecost, Peter said, I will die, for, I'll lay down my life for Jesus, the one who once said, I don't know who he is, said, I'll lay down my life. And as he was about to be crucified, he said, I don't deserve to be crucified, to be killed in the same manner that my Jesus was crucified. And so if you would, crucify me upside down. And that's how Peter died. It was around the same time that the Apostle Paul, the great missionary statesman, about 60 to 65 A.D. is when Paul died at the hands of the Neuronic persecution. It was Thomas, the one who doubted. We looked at him last week who said, unless I see Jesus, I put my hand in his side and, and fingers into his, 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 his scars, I won't believe. P Thomas would go to India with the gospel as a missionary, and there, there would be people in India who killed him, ran him through with a spear as he gave his life for Jesus. It was um, Andrew, Peter's brother, Peter's brother who went to the modern-day Soviet Union with the gospel, and he was preaching the gospel in all these places, ultimately being crucified in Greece. Everyone from Matthew to Bartholomew, all of these uh, disciples of Christ were killed for their faith, and the gospel was growing because it was the blood of the martyrs that became the seed of the church, and the church began to grow. And so by the time you get to 90 A.D., all of the original disciples have been killed off except for one, except for one, and this is John. 
John, you remember, was a disciple who was a fisherman, and when he was probably a teenager, Jesus called him, and he said, John, leave everything behind and follow me. And there was something beautiful about Jesus that caused John to, to, to lay all of that behind and say to his brother James, he said, let's go, let's follow this Jesus. Wherever he goes, let's follow him. And he, of all the disciples, followed Jesus the closest, the only one to remain with Jesus at his crucifixion. Everyone else had bolted, but John was there staring up at Jesus as he bled out and died for the sins of the world. That was John. So John, though he, didn't, he wasn't martyred, wasn't spared the persecution that came to the rest of his buddies. He was persecuted too. They tried to kill him by dumping him into a vat of burning oil. Can you imagine that? They tried to dump him into a vat of burning oil, but history and tradition tells us that he would not die. He did not die. For some, somehow God, the Lord God, and for a specific reason kept John alive, and they said rather than killing him, let's send him where we send all the prisoners of Rome, the worst of the worst, let's send him off to an island called Patmos where he was left to die. So here's John, about 80, 90 years old, thinks this is it, my last days, I'm going to die here. And in the last years of his life, God gives him his greatest mission yet. And there God gives him a vision, which we now know as the book of Revelation. So what we want to do is we want to look into uh, the first chapter of Revelation. That's the climate and the context. There is still a massive persecution. In fact, the persecution that took the lives of the disciples is raging more fiercely than ever before. There's a new emperor now. His name is Domitian. And Domitian exercised and, and incorporated a persecution that wasn't localized to the city of Rome. It was throughout the entire Roman Empire. For the first time, okay, for the first time, he mandated that everybody must worship the emperor, which was himself, by the way. Everyone must worship him. It was called an imperial cult where if you don't worship the emperor, you're asked why, and if you tell them it's because of Jesus, if you do not renounce your faith, then you will face the consequences. Death for most people, but for John, it was exiled to the island of Patmos. And so to churches that were struggling in the midst of a persecution, where their lives were in danger, where their children were being hunted, where their parents were being taken from them, what message would Jesus give to the church? What message would John give to the church? And this is what we see as we begin the book of Revelation. It's chapter 1, verse 1. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what's written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the provinces, in the province of Asia, Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before the throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father 
To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. This is God's word. What do we see as we look at this introduction uh, to the message that God would give through John to the church that was going through persecution? What was the message? What would God give them? What would God give to the church to anchor them in the midst of persecution? Because one, there was persecution that was running rampant all over the empire and they were smack dab in the middle of it. How would they stand in the face of persecution? At the same time, there were people within the church and churches as a whole that were beginning to compromise because they said if in some way we stop standing up for Jesus, stop standing out for Jesus, if we just blend in a little bit, if we compromise a little bit, if we look a little bit more like the Romans in the empire, if we begin to say that Caesar is Lord rather than Jesus is Lord, if we compromise a little bit, maybe we'll be spared from the persecution that is afflicting the church. <laughs> and so what would he give to the church that would enable them to stand. Two things here, okay, two things that they received and two things that he gives to us that we need so deeply to grasp. And the first is this, we need frequent reminders that Jesus is coming soon. We need reminders that Jesus is coming soon because it's easy for us to lose hope living as if he's not going to come soon, and to live complacently thinking that he's not going to come soon. But in the first three verses of this 20-some chapter book, letter, John introduces this two times in the first three verses by saying it's happening soon. In verse 1, revelation of Jesus, God gave them to show his servants what must soon take place. And then at the end in verse 3, it says, blessed are those who hear it, Take to heart what's written in it because the time is near. To a church that's being persecuted, he says the time is near for Jesus to return. To a church that's suffering for the sake of Christ, he's coming. To a church that's living in compromise, that's watered down their faith, that's trying to be just like the world, he's coming soon. You hear this kind of language in advertisements often, right? Coming soon, season four of Cobra Kai. Coming soon, the next edition movie in the Marvel comic universe or whatever it is. Coming soon, this McRib sandwich coming back to McDonald's, right? You see this in a sense, there's, there's an expectation that comes in a healthy way it's coming. But there's also a, a fearful way in which we hear these words, it's coming soon. It's like, hey, you better, you better shape up because daddy's coming home soon. Or 
Um, there's, you know, people are messing around in the cafeteria food fight in your elementary school cafeteria food fight. Hey, hey, teachers are coming. Teachers are coming. There's something that's communicated in these words coming soon that's more than just for your information. What do these words mean? These words communicate a sense of emotion. It's supposed to either get you excited or it's supposed to get you afraid. But at the end of the day, the information which leads to emotion is supposed to lead us to a certain kind of action. The emotions that we feel are supposed to shape a certain kind of behavior to drive us to something. It's coming. Get ready. I can't wait to watch this movie. They're coming. Get ready. we got to be on our best behavior. So when John evokes these words that it's happening soon, he's coming soon, the time is near. It's not just meant to be, hey, just wanted to let you know. It's supposed to bring about a certain kind of emotion that leads us to a certain kind of action. John says to the church then and to the church now. I mean, in fact, we should hear it more loudly and clearly now than they did back then because he said he's coming soon then and it's been 2,000 years and he ain't come yet. Every day we live is closer to the return of Christ. But when he says he's coming soon, it means he could come at any moment. Swiftly, suddenly, without warning, he could come. And the question is, are you ready for the coming of Jesus? Do you believe that his return is nearer now than it has ever been, that he could come literally now? In 10 seconds, he could come. In the middle of this worship service, he could come. At any moment, he could come. And John is trying to anchor, Jesus is trying to anchor the faith of the people, of the churches, by saying he's coming soon. And he makes it clear what he's talking about. He says in verse 9, I, John, your brother, and companion in the suffering, and kingdom, and patient endurance. In other words, guys, I'm going through the same thing as you. Your lives are being threatened. Your life is in danger. I bear on my body the marks of boiling oil through which they tried to take my life for the sake of Christ. And here I am on the island of Patmos. He says, I'm suffering with you. And then he says, I'm on the island because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. In other words, the reason I'm on this island, which is basically the Alcatraz of the Roman Empire, an island in exile where the prisoners would go, where there's no way of escaping, the reason I'm there is because of Jesus, because there are two reasons prisoners would be on Patmos. One, if they were political prisoners, just because of something that they did, they, were just, they committed some kind of a crime, they would go to Patmos, and they would have limited freedom, but they'd be able to live on that island. I mean, it's not, like, it's not Hawaii, it's not Cancun, it's not Cozumel, it's not any of these places, but it's an island where you go to live, and you've got a limited amount of freedom. But if you were there as a religious prisoner, as John was, then you would be most likely chained to a chain gang of people unable to move without freedom, sleeping on cold floors without much to eat and without much in the way of clothing. Most of the religious prisoners would be forced into hard labor, but the commentaries say that because of John's age, probably about 80 or 90 years old, he's not doing any of that stuff. He's just kind of chilling with the other prisoners. What John is saying is, listen, I'm, I just want to make it clear that I'm not living in some kind of a nice island here on St., you know, in, the, in, in Bermuda. Like, I'm not hanging out in luxury. I'm sharing in this suffering with you to let you know that what I see and what I write and what I send to you, I understand what you're going through, and I know what you're feeling, and I'm faithfully enduring with you. 
That's what John is saying to them. To a church that's suffering because of their faith in Christ, because they're standing in obedience to the call of God. He says, may I remind you that Jesus is coming soon. The knowledge that the one who loves you, the great I am, the all-powerful, the risen, ruling, reigning king, that he's coming for you. It was meant to give them endurance, to strengthen them, to say we can endure, we can be strong just a little bit longer. The first day we sent Elijah to preschool, I remember before that day came, the teacher came to visit. And, yeah, they're supposed to do that in order to make it feel a little bit more comfortable before their first time away from their parents for that extended period of time. So the teacher came the whole time. Elijah's just, like, staring. He's just, like, dumbfounded. Like, how come she's at our house? And he, afterwards, he said, I don't want to go to school. Like, I don't want to go to school. But, of course, we have to take him to school because that's what children do and that's what parents do is they make their kids go to school. And so we drop them off, and the teachers all know. They know it's going to be a difficult day for mommy. It's going to be a difficult day for daddy. Boo-hoo. It's going to be a difficult day for the child as well. And so don't linger. Just tell them, hey, we're here. Drop them off and then leave. They're going to be crying, but we'll take care of it. We've been through this rodeo many times before. Just drop them off and go. And so we said, all right. So we said, Elijah, here we are. Here's your classroom. Dropped them off, and we left. He starts crying. He starts wailing, wailing. Oh, come back, come back, come back. And teachers grab him, and they take him in. Wow, 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 wow. He's crying, crying, crying. The first day we went to pick him back up, and a teacher opens the door, and Elijah comes running. He's like, why, why? It took such a long, 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 long time for you to come back. And he was so sad. He was crying. And we're like, how was it? Did you have fun? Did you meet your friends? He's like, no, it was bad. It was bad. It was very, very bad. I don't want to come back again. We said, okay, let's try again tomorrow. We're going to do the same thing. We did the same thing. We dropped him off. Each day got a little bit better because we promised him that soon enough we're going to come and we're going to get you. We're going to bring you back home to the place where you want to be. Well, after a week of, of, of crying like that, the last, on, on Friday, right, he's going home for the weekend, two days you don't have to go to school. Teacher said, Elijah, uh, tell, tell mom and dad what you said. Did you tell mom and dad that you said you're going you're gonna to do better next week? You're not going to cry next week. He said, yes, you know, mom, dad, uh, yes, that's what I said. And so we went home that day really excited, really proud about the gains that he was making at school. Saturday came, Sunday came, Monday came. We dropped him off again, and he's crying, 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 throwing this fit, crying, crying, crying. And at the end, we picked him up, and, and the teacher said, Elijah, you said that you weren't going to cry this time. Remember you said that? And he's crying, crying. He's like, I changed my mind. <laughs> I changed my mind. But as the days went on, sure enough, as one day stacked on top of another and we proved faithfulness that we would come soon enough, he began to realize that it's not that bad. I can endure this hardship because I know that they're coming soon. Whether it's preschool or it's persecution. The knowledge that the one who loves you and who will rescue you and will take you from this broken place, the knowledge that they're coming soon is what anchors and strengthens us 
in order that we might endure the things that we normally would not want to endure. To a church that's struggling in the face of persecution, to a church that's tempted to give up, says Jesus is coming soon. Do you ever wonder if it's worth it to continue to fight and to labor and to grind for the sake of Christ, to pay the price? Is it worth it to continue to read the Word and do my devotions and stand for Christ when it means I, I keep on getting passed over for promotions, I keep on getting this, that, or the other, when my family has disowned me? Is it worth it to continue to hope in the face of these kinds of circumstances? John says the word to you is you need to frequently be reminded that Jesus is coming soon and that his return is nearer now than it ever was. But to the people who are living in compromise, my brothers and sisters are being persecuted. I know the church is going through that. The pleasures of the Roman Empire are plenty for those who consider themselves citizens and bow to the Caesar. To those whose temptation is not to give up, but the temptation is to give in, what does John give them? He gives them the exact same thing. He says, you who once bowed the knee to Jesus who got baptized into the faith, who said, I, I hitch my wagon to Jesus. He says, you too, may I remind you that Jesus is coming soon. For some, it's an encouragement to stay the course. For others, it's a challenge to be awakened from our complacency. Where are you this morning, brother and sister in Christ? You who professed your allegiance to Christ through the waters of baptism. You who said that I will support the church in its worship and work to the best of my ability as you committed your heart to membership. Where are you this morning? Are you facing the realities of persecution in your life? Are you paying a price to follow Jesus? Or have you allowed your faith, which once burned bright and true, to become just an ember, a flicker of a flame because it's been watered down by compromise? Where are you this morning as you come as a child of God, as a member of this church, as one committed to following Jesus, who've sung on many occasions, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. The word to the compromised is Jesus is coming soon. Do you hear these words? To you who are identified more by the things of this world than you are by the marks of Christ, who have given yourself more to pursuing the dreams of this world and of this nation than to pursuing the call of the kingdom and its purposes in your generation. Where are you as you live for Christ? as we follow on the narrow, broken road marked by the tears of Christ. Where are we as we live for Christ in this world? Jesus says the message is the same, to be reminded frequently that Jesus is coming soon because it's easy for us to think that we've got in eternity. There is a sense in which when you know your time is ticking, there's an urgency with which we live, right? If you're a high school student, middle school student, there's... Uh, 
studies have been done that says that 90% of the time you spend with your mom and dad face-to-face, 90% of it will be done by the time you get 18, 18 years of age. 90%. That means if we're a parent, by the time your kid hits 18 years of age, 90% of our time being together in the same place with them will have already taken place. There's a sobering effect that it has in our lives when we begin to realize that time is short. I don't know what life expectancy is these days. I don't know. Maybe it's 70 years old. That means if you're 50 years old, if you're 60 years old, you're on the, you're on the back end of that. If you're 35, you've passed halftime already. How are we going to live in light of the fact that we, it's not a video game where we die and then we get to, boop, reset and start a new life again. You can't do up, up, down, down, A, B, A, B, X, Y, all this stuff and get infinite number of lives. It's not a video game that we play here. This is life. One shot, one life that we get. And to those who are seeking to live for Christ but have been washed away by compromise, he says, Jesus is coming soon. How does that affect the way that we live? If he said he's coming at, at 12 o'clock tonight, then we'll start getting ready. If, it says, if we say we've got a year left, then maybe at 364 day mark we'll start getting ready. But he says he's coming soon. You don't know when it's going to be. Could be any time of day. Jesus is coming back, I know, because the Holy Bible told me so. We don't know when. But it causes us to live with an urgency because he could come now. And I don't want to be caught napping when Jesus returns. Jonathan Edwards, who started this great reformation in America hundreds of years ago, he said, I resolve in my life not to do anything that I would be embarrassed of doing or I would not want to do if it were the last hour of my life. How are we living, church, as the people of God? In, uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, there is a... Uh, there's a theme park called Six Flags. Some of you are from Atlanta. Some of us have been to Atlanta. Some of you have been to Six Flags. It's a bunch of different rides. There's this one ride called Acrophobia. I think acrophobia means a fear of heights. And so this ride has you kind of sitting on a seat like this, uh, fastened in, and your legs are dangling, and they take you up, I don't know how many stories up into the air. And there's rides like this everywhere, and every theme park has rides like this where they just, all right, ready? And they drop you, wee! You come down like this, wee! Go up and down like this. Acrophobia is a different kind of ride because you're up in the air and then they let you hang there for a little bit and you don't know when you're going to drop. You don't know when you're going to (laughs) fall. They don't give you a three, two, one, ready, go, and then you come darting down to the ground. They They don't count down for you like that. In fact, what they do is they trick you by giving you a false countdown. They say, all right, everybody count with me, 10, 9, 8, and then they push the button at 8. And you're like, ah, and your hair is like flying every which way. Three, two, and then you go, bam, and then you go, and you're like, oh, my gosh, I wasn't ready for it. If you're standing in line, you see them. You hear the microphone. You hear the guy, ring around the rosy, pocket full of posies, ashes, and then you come down. You're like, what the, I wasn't ready for that. But as you're waiting in line, you begin to realize they're going to push the button at any second. They may not say anything at all. Just sitting up there, and then, and then, could be, all right, everyone, 
Here we go. Are you ready? On three, two, one. Oh, that one was easy. The reason they do that is so that you're always prepared. Jesus is coming soon. He tells us that in order that there would be a word of urgency to the way that we live life, not complacently doing whatever we think, thinking I've got all this time in order to get it right. I've got all this time to repent before God. I've got all this time to make this relationship, to confess to them. I've got all this time in order to do this, that, and the other. Since Jesus is coming soon, we'll live with this sense of urgency. What does a church that's suffering in persecution need? What does a church that's struggling with compromise need? They need two things. Both of them, the first thing they need is they need a, uh, they need a frequent reminder that Jesus is coming soon, and so do we, in order that we would be a church ready for our bride, groom to come. It's the first thing. What else do we need? What's the second thing that we need? Second thing that we need is we need a fresh revelation of Jesus. Some of us are living off of a revelation of Jesus that's about 10 years old. It's the last time that we saw Jesus in intimacy. Last time we heard his voice speak personally to us. Not through a sermon, not through SNF, but through your own intimate times with God. When's the last time you had a revelation of Jesus that was personal to you? When's the last time you heard his voice in the word of God? When's the last time you saw the demons run and flee at the mention of the name King of Majesty. When's the last time you saw a prayer answered in your life where you knew God was just comforting you and speaking to you and ministering to you? We need fresh revelation of Jesus in order for us to stand in the face of difficulty, in order for us to fight against compromise, to not give up and to not give in because all they saw in the Roman Empire, they saw their, their, their family members being taken from their homes without warning. They saw their people losing jobs as they gathered at their house churches. They would come and share, lost my job, got passed over because, of, uh, because we follow Christ. They saw people come into their house church gatherings beaten because of what they confessed about Jesus. They saw people no longer coming anymore. And they said, what happened? They said, well, uh, they're no longer with us. They went home to be with the lover of their soul. That's what they saw. They saw an empire that was running crazy, running its spear through the hearts of Christianity, through the church. That's what they saw. But what John says is lift your eyes upwards. We need a fresh revelation of the risen, reigning, and returning king. That's what we need. To see Jesus in his glory again. That's what we need. Whether you're compromising or you're fighting for consistency in Christ in the face of compromise, that's what we need. And here's John at the age of 90 years old, the age when most of us would just be like, all right, put me on this island, ready to go and be with Jesus. But God says, John, get your pen out, get your quill out, get your running shoes on because I'm going to take you on a journey through the end of time, and I'm going to use you in ways that I've, you've never before seen me use you. The greatest ministry for John was yet to come. And when John's writing to the church 
saying, listen, guys, I'm suffering with you. I'm a companion in that suffering. I'm a companion in your kingdom. I'm a companion in the patient endurance. I'm going through the same thing that you're going. The great encouragement was that, man, you know what, John? In the midst of suffering, in the midst of persecution, he has this revelation and this vision and this experience of Jesus that encourages the persecuted church to say, as us, as we are in the face of persecution too, that we could experience the intimate presence of God in the same way that John is right now. That is huge. That over and against what you may see right now, saying there's a revelation, a glimpse, a picture, a shining vision of Jesus that is available to you. In fact, that's probably more available in your suffering and persecution than there is in times of comfort and ease. For John, the greatest revelation that he saw, and he Three and a half years with Jesus. But perhaps the greatest gift of John's life was this right here. At the end of life, in the face of persecution, it says, I saw Jesus, and let me tell you what I saw. The same was true of the first martyr in the church, Stephen. said, as he was being stoned, they said that the glory of God shone on him, and he said, look, I see heaven open. Where is Jesus? He is seated at the right hand of God. Seated. Seated like you and me. Seated at the right hand of God. But what does Stephen say in Acts 6? He says, I see heaven open and Jesus standing. (laughs) Standing with arms outstretched to welcome me home. There's a vision, a revelation that is so clear in the face of suffering unlike any other kind of vision, revelation that we could have of God. When I was a first year in college, I was at a retreat that our campus ministry was having. The speaker was a, he was a doctor, committed believer. Um, and I forget how, but he had brought one of his, he might have been his former student or something like that, but this student was, uh, grew up in Korea, went to school in Korea. And so he spoke with a, with a Korean accent, but he just wanted, he was testifying about um, just what it means to live as a bold witness for Christ. It was a powerful, powerful thing. I remember he was uh, really excited, really passionate, really funny. He was engaging as he was telling his, sharing his testimony. But he was a uh, senior year in high school, private school, about 120 people in his class, 150 maybe in his entire school. Uh, and he was, a, he was student body president, really popular, very well-respected, well-loved. Somewhere during that senior year in high school, during his last semester, might have been the last quarter, uh, he gave his life to Christ. He gave, became a committed believer, and his life just flipped right side up and just all in for Christ. And he said, as soon as I got saved, I knew I wanted to tell every one of the 150 people in my school personally, I wanted to share with them about Jesus. And so his disciples said, you, you don't have much time, but you, got, you can do it. Right? Go do it. You start doing it. And so he started praying, and, and before he went out, his uh, disciple gave him this verse from Matthew 5, 11 and 12 in the Beatitudes. Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted, for there's the kingdom of heaven. He said, blessed are those uh, you when, uh, you're, uh, when you're insulted because of my name. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. And he was telling this story about the first guy he went and he shared the gospel with, and they rejected him, and they said, you've changed, you're different, you're weird. And he said he came out of there feeling sad, but then... He's telling this story, super engaging. He's like really excited. And he said, the first thought I had was, ding, that's one point in heaven for me. 
And he told the next story of being rejected and the next story of being rejected. And every time he's told the story, he said, ding, another point for me in heaven. I'm storing up treasure. God is going to reward me. That's the first thing I remember him saying. The second thing I remember him saying was that every time, he said, after, uh, after that rejection, the presence of God felt nearer to me and more intimate to me than I had ever experienced him before. A fresh revelation that comes as we seek to live in obedience and faithfulness to the call of God. Can I tell you something? You see Jesus when you're living in obedience to him. We don't see Jesus in intimacy when we're living in compromise. We don't see Jesus in glory when we're living half-hearted for him. We don't see Jesus in all of his splendor and in a fresh revelation. We don't get those things when we're living wishy-washy for Jesus, but when we're all in for Jesus, when we're seeking him, when we're living in obedience to him, even at the cost, at cost to our lives, that's when we begin to see Jesus in revelation that not only inspires and encourages us, but it grounds the faith of other people who hear the things that we share. There's an anchoring that happens through revelation of Jesus. And so John talks about what he sees, and this is what we see in the rest of the book of Revelation. I would encourage you, spend time this week, especially chapter 1 reading. We're not going to be able to touch on everything. Spend, read through the book of Revelation, especially chapters 1 through 3. But as he, just a couple things that he sees. He brings greetings, grace and peace to you. You know, sometimes you see people sign their emails or their letters, grace and peace. Like, what does that mean? It's a wish. Okay, it's a wish. But when he says grace and peace to you from him who was, who, who is, who was, who is to come, from the seven spirits from his throne and from Jesus Christ, he's saying literally grace and peace from the one who's able to give you grace and peace. That's why he says blessed are those who read these words. You read it, grace of God, the peace of God comes and floods your soul. He talks about Jesus. He says he's the faithful witness. Can you imagine that? He's writing to people seeking to be a faithful witness, bringing grace and peace from the faithful witness, saying Jesus is the faithful one. The word witness throughout Revelation, the word martyreo means, well, it's basically when he says you're a witness, he's saying you're a martyr. As you witness for Christ, you're saying I've stepped over the line. The down payment has been made of my life and I've crossed over that. I'm ready to die for Christ. As a martyr, that's what it means to be a witness. John is saying, as you seek to be faithful as a witness for Christ in this world, mind you, what we're facing here in America is not persecution. Persecution is what's happening to the Uyghur believers in China. That's persecution. Persecution is what's happening in places in, in North and Central Africa, in the Middle East. That's persecution. In China, in North Korea, that's persecution. Life on the line for us to be... A what we have here is liberties being taken, uh, an affront against freedom of speech and freedom of religion, but it's not persecution. The church was called to stand at cost to their lives and at the, at the price of, of, of pain. That's what is being called. And if, it, if this anchors them in that, then it's got to anchor us in what we're going through here. Jesus, he says, is the faithful witness, the one who is faithful for you in order that you might be faithful for him. See him. Remember him. 
Be anchored by the knowledge of him. Not only was he the first faithful witness, but he's also the firstborn from the dead. We saw, I saw, and here's John saying, I saw how faithful he would be to the point of nails, to the point of a spear, to the point of death. But not only, you need to understand, not only was he faithful for you, but listen, he was put into a tomb. And there on the third, his buried body began to breathe. And he broke through the chains of sin and death for you and for me. He's the firstborn of the dead. What that means is that if he was the faithful witness and he rose from the dead, that you too who die for the sake of Christ, you who die in Christ, will rise up at the resurrection as well. Uh, the ruler of the kings of the earth. You might think it's Domitian. You might think it was Nero. You might think it's all of these emperors. But the ruler of the kings of the earth is Jesus. He holds it all in his hands. Make no mistake about that. The demons don't run and flee at the mention of the emperor of Rome. The demons don't run and flee at the mention of the governor of Judah, Judea. The demons run and flee at the mention of this king of kings and lord of lords, and he's coming again. And he says to him who loves us, has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us to be a kingdom and priests. He says, you've got a mission You've got a purpose. You're not here just to save your own life and save your own hide and then enter into glory. You're here for a purpose. There's a mission with which you're, with, by which you're here, for which you're here. Just don't forget that. And to a people who are persecuted, they needed to know that the one for whom they suffer has loved us. To him who loves us. In other places it says to him who loved us. Is it difficult to find the right tense to see whether he loved us or whether he loves us now? Which is it? The answer is it's both. Because the tense in the original language is called the aorist tense, which you don't care about. But here's what it means. It means a past event that has continual effect to this very moment. What does it mean to say that he has loved us? It means to say the same thing, that he loves us now. John says, Here, here's, here's what I saw. Here's what I know. As I knelt in the dust at the foot of the cross looking up, I saw how he has loved us to the point of death. And if in his darkest hour he did not give you up, then now in his glory he will not give you up. To him who loved us then, he is the God who loves you now, and he is the one who will love you forever. He loves you in the midst of your suffering, and he loves you in the midst of your compromise, and he will not stop loving you. Do you know that in your heart of hearts? Because if you know that, it's not just, man, I'm dying for my Lord, I'm dying for my God. It's like a bride waiting for her groom, lovingly, longingly. That's why in that, that Latin one says, look, he's coming, he's coming. Every eye will see him, even the ones who pierced him. They're going to see him, and they're going to mourn the day that they crucified the Son of God. And at the end of all that, the response is, so shall it be. Amen. In other words, what is he saying? This is in the original language. This is the most forceful, forceful acknowledgement of agreement. 
Come, Lord Jesus. We're longing for you. We need you. We're waiting for you. We're desperate for you. Would you come? Would you come? We're waiting and we're longing. We're holding on because we know that you're coming soon. If I may, how much do you long for Jesus to return? How desperately do you long for Jesus to come back? I'm not talking about to take you to heaven and to bring the new heavens and the new earth down here. I'm not talking about to see the one who's passed on before you. Not, I'm not talking about that. That's, that's a huge part of heaven. I'm not talking about so that you could be freed from all of the encumbrances and the debt that you've got here. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about because you love Jesus. You long for him to come. That's what he's talking about. That's how we're going to stay firm in our faith. There's a certain type of video that I watch on, online that I really, um, I'm, I'm kind of a sucker for it. Every time I watch it, like I, either I have to stop it before or I can't watch it without crying. These videos where usually it's children at school or children at home or children at the somewhere, some game or at an airport, and they don't know anything that's going on. But as a surprise, mom and dad who's been fighting overseas in the army or in some of the, the, one of the forces comes back and they surprise their kid with their homecoming. Like videos like that, they, yeah, they mess me up every time. Every time the sacrifice that they've made and the reunion or, and, and the person that they love coming to see them and, and being together. And, and, man, I would love to be that messenger. Would love to be that messenger who goes to the soldier overseas, says, you've done great. We're letting you go home to be with your loved ones. I would love to be the guy to bring that message to them. Home for them, this is reunion, it's relationship, it's rest, it's all of those things. And I would love to be there to give that message and the joy on their face to know I'm going home. There might be another type of video that would never become viral. It's a similar situation but a different setting where you've got a bunch of kids and they're playing at Disney World or Islands of Adventure or some theme park in their loving life. It's a time of their lives. And yet it's time for them to go home. I would not like to be the messenger that tells them, all right, children, it's time for you to go home. Because I believe that their response would be completely different from the response of the soldier. Their response would be kicking and screaming, I don't want to go home. I hate home. I want to stay here. I want to, this is, this is better. Home is terrible. I don't want to go there. Oh, I don't even like my mom and dad anymore. I don't want to go. What's the difference between these two when we're talking about the same place? It's time to go home. The difference is that one was coming from the midst of a battleground. 
The other was coming from the midst of the playground. And how you see this life and how you see this world will determine how much you long for home. Do you long for Jesus? Do you long for heaven? Do you long for home? If you do, then most likely you're walking the walk of faith. You're living a life of obedience. You're living in the midst of a battleground, and you see the casualties. You see the bullets flying. You're fully engaged and locked and loaded in the spiritual battle. If you don't, then let this serve as a call to urgency. If you don't, the most probable reason that I can think of from Scripture is that you see this world as a playground. And you don't want to go home because you've made this world your home, because you've stored your treasures not beyond the blue, but you've stored up your treasures here on earth, because you've got your cars and you've got your home and you've got your lands and you've got your money and you've got your popularity, you've got your success, you've got your friends, and there's nothing about glory that is attractive to you because all that you long for and adore is grounded in this life. The call of Revelation is that we would awaken to the truest realities that we often don't see. That Jesus gave his life and freed us to set us free in love. Not so that we could be bound to this ground, but so that we could be bound for glory. And he calls us to see with new eyes the faithful witness, the firstborn among the dead, the ruler of the kingdoms, as he calls us out of our stupor, of our slumber, of our sleeping, so that we might arise and be the church that the world needs in this time. And so he says, blessed are those who read these words. But even more so, he says, blessed are those Truly satisfied are those, even in the midst of persecution, who not only read these words, but hears them and takes them to heart. May we be faithful to do that as we go through these next couple months together. Let's pray together. Church of Jesus Christ, church of the harvest. Let's awaken and be the church that Jesus wants us to be. Let's be the church that Jesus died for us to be. Let's be the church that this world desperately needs. Not one that looks so much like them that there's nothing that we have to offer. But a church that lives and breathes the resurrection life that causes this world to say, I need what they have. Lord, awaken us for your glory. Can we pray for a minute like that? If there's compromise within our lives as we prepare to come to this table, let's ask the Lord that he would cleanse us as we confess all the sins that we know, surrendering them to the Lord God. And if you're suffering for your faith, in obedience to Christ, you're walking on the road marked with suffering, you're paying the price, Oh, hear the words of Jesus that I'm coming soon, that I see you. As you seek to be a faithful witness for me, remind, let me remind you that I was faithful for you and will remain so even until the end of the age. 
Let's pray for a minute together as we confess our sins before the Lord, as we seek to live a life awakened to the new life that Christ has saved us for. Uh, let's pray for a couple moments in that way together.